This is Nicole Doily, and welcome to Season 6 of Let's Talk Conversations on Race. Here we discuss various topics on race, hoping to spark conversation and foster greater understanding. Remember to subscribe to Let's Talk on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like our monthly newsletter, please sign up at NicoleDoily.com. Now, let's talk. Cities have these ideologies of life, innovation, diversity, and what happens when gentrification comes, the gentries are usually those with resources. They come in and they flood this community with resources. And naked eye, it looks like a benefit until the people who live there can no longer afford to live there. And the lower class is pushed right out. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and when a rundown neighborhood started to perk up, that seemed like a good thing. Uh, empty buildings were torn down and, and condos built and boarded up shops gave way to new coffee shops. And I felt like, okay, this is good. The, the, the neighborhood is perking up. But I never considered what happened to the people who lived in those neighborhoods, even though this very thing happened in my neighborhood, the neighborhood where I grew up. So where I grew up, there were several rent control department buildings surrounded by brownstones, which today sell for millions of dollars. And I grew up in one of those rent control departments. And after we had moved out, developers began to buy other renters out, paying about $10,000 to leave. So if you were part of the working class, $10,000, especially back in the day, seemed like a lot of money and a lot of people took it. This was more cash than they had ever seen before. And today, my apartment building, this this rent-controlled apartment building that I grew up in, is now a fancy condominium where units sell for $1.5 million. And so, and those who took the $10,000 found that finding another affordable apartment in New York was hard, and they wound up moving into poorer communities, less desirable neighborhoods. So I grew up in this wonderfully economic, diverse community where my school had wealthy kids who lived in those brownstones and more working class kids like me who lived in the rent control departments. But it's not the same anymore. Now it's really just for the wealthy. And a similar phenomenon happens in working class neighborhoods where most people own their homes. You know, a resident might be 65 years old and she's paid off her mortgage and Um, She can manage the taxes and she's planning on living there the rest of her life where she raised her kids, but developers offer her neighbors money to move out. And then those homes are torn down and more expensive ones are built. And now the property taxes are so high that this 65 year old woman can no longer afford to live, to stay in her house. So what I'm describing is something called gentrification, and it's sort of a buzzword these days. And I have somebody who I admire very much uh, because he's my pastor, um, Pastor Melvin Cross, who is the senior pastor of Glory House International. And he's currently working on his doctoral dissertation about this very subject. So welcome, Pastor Melvin. Thank you for having me back, Nicole. I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, well, it's so great to have you back. Yes, I forgot to mention that for those of you who listened to the first time I interviewed Pastor Melvin, um, it was one of my favorite interviews and a very popular episode. And so I'm just really thrilled that you said yes to come back again. 
So Pastor Melvin, can you talk about gentrification and what you have found as you've studied this for your dissertation? Yeah, so gentrification in America has a dark and long history. Um, Mm. When we think of gentrification, the reality is that people of influence and power, um, they usually go into more marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. They invest in it, but they invest with the intent of removing the what we call the indigenous population, people that live in those communities, that grew up in those communities, that have established families and culture in those mm-hmm. communities. And mm-hmm. they go in with the under the guise of improvement, but not really mm-hmm. sure the depth of the detail that this community is going to be improved, but you won't have the opportunity to enjoy these improvements because mm-hmm. of displacement. Um, mm-hmm. and so my dissertation is coming from the vantage point of gentrification and the responsibility of faith-based communities. Um, because mm. believe it or not, the scriptures have has a theology of the city and the, the, the benefit of city living. And so I'm just going to do it really quickly. The oath, we know that the Bible starts in the garden, right? It starts mm-hmm. in the garden, but in Revelation, it ends in the city. It, mm. And we see all throughout the Old Testament where, you know, the prophets and the writers of old, they talk about the benefit or the beauty of the city. Jeremiah 29, mm. 7 tells us to pray for the welfare of the city. Right. Mm. Um, and so cities have these ideologies of life, innovation, um, mm. diversity, and it is God's desire for these cities to be inhabited, but also to be diversified. Everything happens in the city. And so Mm. what happens with gentrification comes, the gentries are usually those with resources or Mm -hmm. they are a part of an entity. They come in and they flood this community with resources. And Mm. to the naked eye, it looks like a benefit until the people who live there can no longer afford to live there. Mm-hmm. And so my perspective is coming from the place of not only do people lose their homes, but people lose their houses of worship as well. Mm-hmm. Churches across the nation, since 2003, church sales have spiked up to 72%. Oh my goodness. Churches are losing their sacred spaces and they're being turned into bars, um, condominiums, clubs, and things of that nature. So they're taking sacred spaces and they're turning in them into certain other things. And why is this? Because people know that they think that churches are tax are they are tax exempt. We're nonprofit, but what happens? Mm. Our congregations can no longer afford to live in their communities, so they're displaced. They're used wow. to move further out into places that they don't have. They don't readily have access to transportation. That means mm-hmm. congregations begin to dwindle. That means offerings begin to dwindle, and they can't afford to maintain their space. Mm. And so gentrification has a wide effect. It it has like a ripple effect on many entities in those communities. And of of course, business. So you talked about churches and of course, businesses too, small mom and pop stores and other businesses like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those businesses normally don't last. They don't last um, within within five years of gentrification. Those businesses normally have to close. And we yeah. figure things out because of the increase of taxes or the the, the spike of cost for everything. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then what happens to schools? Like I mentioned that I went to school with wealthy brownstoners and more working class 
rent-controlled apartment dwellers, but what happens to the schools in these communities? Yeah, the schools lose their diversity. They lose their diversity. Um, uh, A school that used to be rich with ethnicity and culture becomes very monolithic in its approach. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what also happens are those kids who don't get out of those communities. Well, those kids who endure gentrification, say you have a black Mm. brown child who endures gentrification, their family finds a way to stay in that community and they still attend the same school. They're attending a Mm -hmm. completely different school that does not, that now does not offer the same services that it did prior to gentrification. Mm -hmm. Say a kid was getting um, services that were more culturally um, directed, those services Mm -hmm. go away. And now this kid Mm -hmm. is left to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I remember reading an article about a, a school, I think it was in New York City, um, where this happened. And not only are the services that that child might be used to gone, but now there are these expensive, like there's French club and opportunities to go to France and all these things that his family can't afford. So the life of the school and all these clubs and everything become very expensive. Yeah. And it further emphasizes the, the poverty that yeah. people experience because now they're in a place that's supposed to be safe and inclusive. Now they're being ostracized because of their lack of, um, uh, of resource, of finances. Right. And now that child, if the child does have family, does have to move. Now that child is in a school where it's a, where there's concentrations of poverty. And we know that lots of negative things happen when poverty is concentrated. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oftentimes when neighborhoods are gentrified, the losers are the lower class who are priced yeah. right out of their homes and have to move out. And uh, they're just losing. They're not only losing a home, but they're losing a, a, a whole community, a whole culture. Um, mm a piece of their identity. Yeah. So are there better ways to uplift communities? Because, you know, we do know, like I said, concentrations of poverty, you know, lots of negative things happen. So if you have a poor community, is there a a way to uplift that community that doesn't have the negative effects on people who just simply don't make a lot of money? Yeah. Yeah. So that's a part of my research, especially once again, coming from faith based perspectives. Um, Yeah. Local organizations, more specifically, the local church has normally the people power. And if they leverage it well, which a lot of um, more historic churches do, the influence Mm -hmm. to get the resource to upgrade and update a community. Mm-hmm. So that's one approach that can be taken. Local faith-based organizations um, start to invest in those communities. What does that investment look like? That investment mm-hmm. that investment looks like um, first-time home uh, owner programs, which are mm-hmm. very popular. The research shows that first-time home buyer programs spike the likelihood of renters becoming owners because mm-hmm. not only is there opportunity. Because we all have a lot of people have opportunity, but you oftentimes don't know what to do with that opportunity. These programs mm-hmm. help people walk step by step by step to becoming owners. And that gives them the investment in their community to start mm-hmm. making those changes. Because when people own property, they have a higher investment in that property. They'll start to beautify the outside. They'll ensure mm-hmm. that the property looks presentable. Um, mm-hmm. that, that increases buy-in. So local organizations, they, those type of programs can help improve the community. Local governments, um, if they have enough pressure, if city council is intact and has a diversity council and they actually listen to their constituents, there is mm-hmm. funds that come through counties and cities that are, that are identified solely for the beautification of certain communities without um, displacement. 
And so mm-hmm. we have um, organizations, once again, that have the people power and that have the influence. They can begin to put those dollars to work in various communities. So it sounds like churches and other organizations that could sort of link people to these opportunities to sort of provide a bridge. Yeah. We have one in this in our community in the city of Rochester. In the Beachwood and Emma district, there is an organization called Connected Communities. Mm. And what Connected Communities does, it literally does that. It connects various entities within a certain zip code to start to bring um, beautification to the community, home ownership, um, hiring people working within their finding jobs and small businesses that's within the community to help keep people in their neighborhoods while being able to own, being able to have employment and being able to have a say so in what happens in their neighborhoods. So there's organizations Mm -hmm. like that, nonprofits. And what we're seeing with uh, connected communities is first there was a a apprehension of the community because of course, history shows that organizations that come in and bring gentrification are normally pushes people out. But as Mm -hmm. people start to buy in, we see a, um, not only an upgrade, but there is a maintaining of healthy culture, Mm -hmm. maintenance of healthy culture. So you have organizations like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And and believe it or not, one of our parishioners actually, they're they're the executive director of that organization. Um, yeah, I know. Dr. Lashonda. Yes. Yes. So I've been doing a lot of research on their work and just seeing how they are maintaining the cultural health of the community while seeing the beautification of it. Because usually yeah. what happens historically, what happens is and we said this gentrification happens and the lower class is pushed right out. And yeah. people that refuse to sell their properties, what happens is they'll start to build around them. Yeah. And things once again, things just become so um, impossible that they end up moving. Yeah. And and even, you know, affordable grocery stores are replaced by things like Whole Foods and sort of more expensive, trendier grocery stores, which they can't afford the uh, the food to buy. I mean, gentrification is it's really a double edged sword because no one wants to live in an undervalued, decayed city interior. But at the same time, the lower class are the ones who suffer the most when change takes place. Yeah, so There are numerous examples of uh, cities and developments offering affordable housing options in gentrified neighborhoods. And the results then become, it's a beautiful mix. You have white collar and blue collar, middle class, lower class, and different yeah. ethnic groups all living together in the same neighborhood. And they cross yep. each other's paths daily. This is the way yep. the gentrification works. And they're, like I said, it's a double-edged sword. It can work. It can diversify a neighborhood if it's done well, or it can be mm-hmm. a detriment. It can kind of whitewash a neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I often said that I feel like I grew up in the United Nations because what you're describing is how I grew up. It's just so beautiful. So I feel sad when I look at my, I looked up, Googled my old apartment building and saw this, you know, structure, which, you know, my family certainly could have never afforded to live in. Um you know, there there are violent examples of displacement, too. Um, in the 70s and 80s, um, a bunch of young professionals moved into Hoboken, New Jersey, and the potential sale of converted units went up, and property owners just couldn't resist displacing low-income tenants. And the way that they did it was very nefarious. There were 500 fires that tore through poor communities and 55 people died and 8,000 people were left homeless. And it was determined that most of them were arson. Hmm. And so it's not always a quiet, peaceful takeover. Sometimes it is a very violent 
evil takeover of these communities. So you talked about scripture before. What does scripture say about the displacement of the poor for financial gain? It's wicked. The scripture is clear (laughs) about the wickedness of it. Jesus speaks very often in the book of Luke, I think it's the 14th chapter, where he's talking about giving room for the poor. Like he talks Mm. about the banquet table and how you give certain people the best seats while the poor have to sit on the floor. Um, Mm. In houses of worship, how you offer the man with the coat the front seat, but the poor have Mm. to sit in the back on the floor. This is not just a principle for worship or church. This is a principle for community. When we mm-hmm. take away the, the very little that the poor have and mm-hmm. we, we tax it or we just take it away from them um, just outright, it is something that is looked down with disdain from God. Uh, God doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't like that. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures mm-hmm. in heaven. Instead of us mm-hmm. giving to the poor, we take away from the poor. We take away mm-hmm. their 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 homes, their environment, and ultimately sometimes their livelihood because mm-hmm. there's so many ripple effects to gentrification. And so the yeah. theology of of city, of community, of habitation, it's it's it was the promise that God gave to a people. I have a land mm-hmm. for you. I have a home for you. This is where you are mm-hmm. to go settle. This is where you are to establish family. This is where you're supposed to establish tradition. And when that's mm-hmm. taken from them, these are things that God looks down on. It's, it's, it's really mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm even reminded of when Nathan the prophet came to David with a parable, you know, and he said a rich king took the lamb of a poor man and the lamb was all that the poor man had. And he took it and, and feasted with this lamb, you know, and David said, you know, that's a wicked person who, who would do that. Yeah. And, and, and Nathan, the prophet said, well, David, that's what you did when you took Bathsheba. Yeah. So it's just interesting that the parable that Nathan used was about the rich taking from the poor. Mm. So, so very true. So very yeah. true. And I mean, there's there's literally hundreds of scriptures about that. Pro- Proverbs twenty nine seven is one of my favorite. It, it gives mm. us an indication for what righteousness is. It says a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does mm. not understand such knowledge. You know, mm. and so it's the wicked man only sees the the profit that he can make, and he doesn't he doesn't have that or um, desire that desire to see the effect that his benefit or his profit will have on the poor. But it's a part of our righteousness that gives us the ability to see the needs of the poor and to help them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm always interested in New York City because that's where I grew up. So um, and and I love Lincoln Center. I, you know, I grew up as a musician and, um, you know, very interested in all things music. Um, but at the same time, the way Lincoln Center came to be was once again a very um yeah wicked way. So where Lincoln Center is used to be a neighborhood called San Juan Hill. Mm-hmm. And San Juan Hill was a poor community. But like you're saying, it was vibrant. There were dance halls and jazz clubs and great musicians like Thelonious Monk and, and James P. Johnson, who created the Charleston. Um, they lived there and made music there and became famous there. But by the 50s, um, a man named Robert Moses, who worked with the mayor, decided that San Juan Hill was the perfect place 
to build Lincoln Center. So the Metropolitan Opera and the New York Philharmonic said, you know, we want a new home. And he said, you know, I've got the perfect location. And interestingly, made even more money because as they began to tear down the buildings in San Juan Hill, he said yes to West Side Story being filmed amidst the rubble of those buildings. So yes, and so he used eminent federal eminent domain laws to evict 7,000 African American and Puerto Rican families and 800 businesses from San Juan Hill. And ironically, Thelonious Monk's music and Johnson's music are still played at Lincoln Center. So it's like, yeah, we'll take, we'll evict you, but we'll keep your music. <laughs> yeah, that's how it's done. So, so. Yeah. So this is an example of urban renewal, which is sort of a cousin of gentrification. Have you looked into urban renewal at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely is a cousin and it's just prettier flowery language to the same outcome, <laughs> some of the same outcomes. Yeah. And that, that, that's a bit of the argument and the discussion around it. it urban renewal, gentrification, um, de- urban development. It's, it's, a, it's, it's this different language with a lot of the same outcomes. It's the beautification, it's the improvement, it's the building up. At the, with the detriment of the poor or the, yeah. the, the lower middle class, those who cannot sustain that change and they're displaced. Yeah. 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 So there's, there's, um, we know Brooklyn has been completely gentrified. Harlem mm-hmm. is being gentrified. And one of the things that's holding Harlem back from being gentrified are strong organizations that are present there um, and they're mm-hmm. utilizing their resources like say A.R. Bernard's Christian Cultural Community Church. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's literally spent millions of dollars in purchasing up blocks, blocks at a time to prevent gentrification. And they're using wow. community development corporations to build uh, mixed income housing, to allow people who are from that community to own houses and to have business startups so that the the spirit of the community can remain the same while the uh, external of the community can be improved. While there's a beautification, mm-hmm. there is still a sustaining of the soul of that community. And mm-hmm. that's really what's necessary. And I believe that is the heart of God for communities, right? That is the mm-hmm. heart of God for cities, that we are renewed on our inward spot, but then outside can be beautified. It can be transformed. It can be, it can be an upgrade. And so, yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I'm looking at those models of ways to um, implement across the nation. How can these institutes and organizations upgrade these communities, empower the poor, give them resource while giving them a better place to live? Yeah. You know, I think it starts by seeing the poor as people (laughs) And, and not as sort of subhuman uh, you don't deserve to live there because look what you've done to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting. That's the same spirit that was in the people who, who moved West and displaced Native Americans um, and put Native Americans on reservations, which were sort of like ghettos, you know, in terms of concentrations of poverty. Mm-hmm. But it was the same spirit. Like, you don't deserve this land. We're taking it and we're going to push you off. It's the same spirit, the same thing. Some of the major components or pushes of gentrification, it's, it's well, let me take that back. All of the um, major pushes of gentrification are the powerful, are the wealthy. 
Yeah. There is now this is gonna be a little controversial, of course. I'm gonna put this out there right now. In the Okay, early, I can handle it. In the early sixties <laughs> and seventies, some of the strongest gentrifiers were people in the in the gay community. You know mm. why? Why? Because, you know, back then that was not accepted at all. There was no acceptance of it. They would leave, right. they were mostly white, white men and white women. They would leave their suburbs where they were not welcomed where they were ostracized and they would come into urban ghettos where our culture and our community, we're very welcoming. We're very embracing. We are a safe haven, right? Yes. They would come and we would embrace them. We would wrap our arms around them. We would give them family, you know, family by choice. Yes. They would yes. then begin to beautify the communities and upgrade the neighborhoods and change mm. everything. And then minorities started to get pushed out. Wow. So what may have started off as fleeing persecution has turned into many cities' best assets and turned property value into like these huge, beautiful, sprawling neighborhoods while the indigenous population are the ones who have been pushed out. Wow. And so that's what we see a lot, not just with that community, but with white, with privilege, people that have privilege, people that can potentially have influence, it starts out as something honorable, something as, you know, being finding a safe haven. But then they start to bring their culture of affluence and their culture of privilege into that community. And they change things that was never they were never asked to change it, but they change mm-hmm. it. They take what they what their standard of uh, beauty is and they put it on on this community and now this community mm-hmm. doesn't have a place to live because of that. Mm-hmm. These things happen. These are things that are have historically happened that a lot of people don't aren't aware of. We're not aware of the yeah. type of history. Yeah. Whereas if you moved into a neighborhood and if the embrace were to a two way street, like they're embracing me which is beautiful. And I'm going to embrace them, meaning I'm not going to use them in a selfish way. Mm -hmm. I'm going to build true friendship and true community so that, so, so that I'm not going to want to do something that would be detrimental to them. Yeah. So it's just, again, it's seeing people as people, not I'm going to do what's good for me, but not what's good for them. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very much. So, Along those same lines, Nicole, this is yeah. that also can be a little controversial. Some okay. of the major pushes of gentrification have also been church planners. Oh, let me talk about give, that. Let me give more clarity. <laughs> Not only church planners, but white church planners. Okay. Um, these theologies that talk a lot about moving in and contributing to the flourishing of a city, but say very yep. little about the negative disruption that these moves can make in existing communities. For instance, mm. there's this book about church planning. It's uh, talking about doing balanced gospel-centered ministry. The author of that book says nearly, it's, he, he talks about how nearly 400 communities across the nation due to church planting has been disrupted. Wow. You have white church planters going into urban context, right? Yep. The unspoken yep. assumption is that these people need our, they need evangelical saving. Mm-hmm. The salvation that's needed is in their souls, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not in their land. Yes. So prior to white hip church planners in in a foreign mission field, the pristine and untouched beauty of those communities have now been changed with the appearance of evangelism. But mm. now you have these cool churches in place. You, mm-hmm. 
Then you start to find these coffee houses, normally Starbucks. Then you start mm-hmm. to find people moving into the community for the sake of planting these churches, but not with the sake of really saving these communities as it pertains to empowerment, as it pertains mm-hmm. to education, how mm-hmm. fair and equal housing and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature. When, mm-hmm. I, when I was doing that research, it blew my mind. I was like, wow, that's crazy. That's deep. And it's that and it's that unbalanced idea that I'm going to save your soul, but I don't care about um, justice. I don't care about education and housing and all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, a very narrow view of what salvation really is. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And, and very selfish. Um, gentrification is all about the, the affluent moving into poor communities but it's not a two-way street. The poor are not able to move into affluent communities. So meaning there's all of these kind of zoning laws that prevent multifamily housing from being built and affordable housing being built. So if you look at a, if, if we take Rochester as an example, and if you look at Pittsford and Penfield and Parenton and Brighton to some extent, there are these strict zoning laws that prevent multifamily housing and affordable housing that would enable the working class to get a foothold into these neighborhoods that have these great schools. And it's the, it's like the idea is like, uh, we don't want you here Mm. because somehow you will ruin what we have. So how important is it for these suburbs to have mechanisms that allow the working class in? It's it's very, very important for several reasons. One, change of environment, upgrading environment, is it's a good thing, right? Yes. It's the beautification of homes, access to good schools, playgrounds, groceries, those are that changes the mentality of the person when you have access and options. So them giving the working class or the poor access to those to those suburbs and to those options, it actually over time improves their mindset. It changes their understanding um, from more of a survival mentality to now Mm -hmm. I can literally I can be safe. I can live and I don't have to fear. Mm -hmm. Very important that they give access to that. But I think the reason why there's such a fear, because they're only looking at the short term outcome. Yes, mm. I have people in your neighbor that could potentially be your neighbors that don't look like you. It may be mm-hmm. a little louder than you would like it to be, but what you don't realize is that a lot of that is cultural. A lot of it is mm-hmm. cultural, and it's not mm-hmm. just that they're you know these unlearned hood rats or ghetto people, as you know they would call us. No, this is a part of our culture, but we are being acclimated into something new. While we're being acclimated, we're still going to hold on to some of those things that are true to who we are, and so. Mm-hmm. Exposure is everything. Poor or working class people need to be exposed to better ways of living. It literally rewires the way we see. It rewires the way we think. Which is one of the reasons why neighborhoods where everyone is poor is so hard. Whereas neighborhoods where, where that aren't so concentrated are so positive. Yeah. Do you think there's also a fear that crime will increase when, when poor people move in? It definitely is a, it, it, that is a major fear, but what people need to realize crime is already happening. It's just higher levels of crime. It's not the low yeah. level of crime. Right. <laughs> so it's usually the white collar crime. It's usually the abuse behind closed doors. And when people of, uh, you know, working class or, or the poor, they come in, they, they don't have the, 
they don't have the social skills to hide their crime. <laughs> so yeah. that is an honest, that is an honest concern. That is an honest yeah. concern. But I believe yeah. it's a, it's a short term concern. Yeah. Um, so statistics prove when people's environments change, they start to adapt eventually. Yeah. When there's opportunities, the opportunities that better schools, better schools provide, you know, opportunities to do other things than just sort of hang out. Yeah. And also, I think a lot of the crime that we see in inner cities is because everybody is poor. Yeah. Whereas when you have the poor mixed in with the middle class and affluent, I think it is different. You know, like going back to the neighborhood that I grew up in, like I said, rent controlled apartments surrounded by brownstones, there was not a lot of crime in my neighborhood. Mm. You know, there were places that you didn't go late at night, but that's sort of true anywhere. There's places I wouldn't go in the suburbs late at night. Right, right. Um, but it's not like people were selling drugs on the corner. Um, and I think that's because it was a mixed neighborhood. That was the, not to interrupt, but that was, other than the tax breaks that developers got, that was the mindset and the purpose between mixing, by mixed income housing. Yes. Because those who have resource are living next to those who have little lesser resource. So it's kind of a learning by observation. That was that was one of the intents of it. Right. Because like once again, exposure changes the way we see and the way we process. And so it does lessen crime. It does change the landscape of how people consider family, consider life, consider work, because they now they have access to see and to kind of have an understanding of it. Yeah, right. Right. It's like anything. If you're exposed to um, where everybody around you goes to college, well, you're going to start thinking about college. Mm-hmm. Whereas if nobody goes to college, it's really hard to think about college. Mm-hmm. It feels like this distant, impossible thing that's only for the rich. But if you're living next to a middle class person who sends their kids to college, then it's like, oh, you know, college is possible. Yeah. 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 It changes the way we see. It changes our possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And also the other way around too. you know, economic diversity, when somebody who is, say, upper middle class lives next to somebody or goes to school with somebody who is lower middle class. I think there's an apathy that grows Mm -hmm. when everybody has money. and there's a... Um, it humanizes them. Actually, when they see this, it actually humanizes, quote unquote, poor. Yes, it, right. It, oh, they're actually people. Oh, we get to interact. They're actually good people. Yeah, right. right. And so yeah, they're probably... Everybody who's wealthy, everybody who has the same... It, there is an apathy that develops because there's a dehumanization because the only thing we hear about them is on the news. And it's usually a a crime story or somebody's robbed or somebody's killed. Now we have these people that live next to us or going to school with us. Wow. After you get, after you get past your biases, you get to know them as people. Yes, totally. Your exposure to black people is beyond the things that the news loves to talk about. Yeah. 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 Which sort of, which leads me to, to um, my last point, which is that, you know, sometimes when when affluent people move into working class neighborhoods, and you said this, like they're not, the affluent people aren't used to, you know, music and big backyard parties and all of this stuff. They're not used to living next to somebody black or brown. It's been proven that the cases of police being called increases when white people move into a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it's not always that something criminal is going on. It's just, 
you know, your neighbor has a teenage son and all of a sudden you see this black boy and he scares you. So you call the police. You know, honestly, living in Penfield, we think about that, you know, when our and we don't allow our boys to walk around at night. And I know other black people who live in our neighborhood who are the same. Uh, because we know that a white person looking out the window and seeing a black boy, they might make they might instantly profile and make assumptions and dial nine one one. Actually, I actually I have a friend, a black friend who lives in another community, and um, her brother. She's black, but the community is mostly white. And her brother was visiting, and he smokes, and she doesn't allow smoking in the house. So he, she said, you could sit on the porch and smoke, or sit on the front steps and smoke. So he was sitting out on the front step smoking and the neighbor called the cops on him. Wow. Knowing that her family is black. So they didn't say, oh, maybe he's a relative visiting. They just knew that they hadn't seen him before. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this happens too, where, you know, which is another thing that sort of subliminally can make this family feel like, you know what, I'm not even welcome in my own community anymore. Right. They always feel like we always feel like outsiders, you know, even though this is our home, we're mindful of the possibility of of the cops being called on uh, discrimination. We're always mindful of it. Always. Yeah. I grew up yeah. in the suburbs. I grew up in it was a diverse suburb, but there were times where I was the only black kid in my class. Yep. And there were times where, like I'm very aware of my blackness. I'm very aware of yep. who I am, not because, yep. you know, I looked in the mirror, but because of how I feel like people are treating me. Or the yeah. caution that happens yeah. when people come around me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it makes it makes you very stiff and very self-conscious. Yeah, very. We yeah, that's 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 one of the things, you know, black and brown people, we we know how to acclimate and adjust very well. Yeah. On the other hand, white people don't have to they don't have to. They're they have the luxury and their privilege gives them, they force them the ability to just be who they are wherever. And so, yep. but that has to change because we aren't as, we're not as isolated as we, black people aren't as isolated as we once were. We don't just live in one neighborhood. We're not monolithic. We're not all the same. We, yep. live, we live in Pittsburgh. We live in Penfield. We live in Henrietta. We live yep. on the west side of the city. We live on the east side of the city. We live across, across anywhere we want to live. So now you yep. just have to get used to us being who we are and, and, and living around us. Yes. So, so oh, good. Yeah. One last thing. That's also, though, that's partially an outcome of gentrification as well. What do you mean? Uh, before gentrification, we only had a op- few options. We had to live in this community, this, yep. this underserved, under-resourced community. Gentrification happens. We, are, we move out. Now we're living in suburbs or uh, places that we wouldn't have lived, but now we have to figure out a way to have employment. We, we, we're going to figure out a way to go to college. Now we're going to live in more affluent communities where if mm. they would have left us alone, which is, you know, when they would have left us in our quote unquote ghettos, we would have stayed there. So <laughs> now we've been exposed. We see there's more. We go back to our communities and like, wow, it's really nice here now. It wasn't nice before I left. But now it's nice, right? Huh. So now it gives us the opportunity once again to see differently. And now it's yeah. just running all over the place, which is a good thing. Which is a good thing, which is the history of humanity. You know, humanity emigrates for all kinds of different reasons, migrates for different, all kinds of reasons, jobs and everything else. So, which is, 
you know, rife in scripture too, you know, where people leave, I'm thinking of the book of Ruth, where, you know, Naomi left because of drought and famine, um, and then came back. So, so people come and go all the time. And it's always a good thing. And it is one of the things that drives integration. Yeah, definitely. It definitely integration is very important. It it is important to society. Yeah. Well, Pastor Melvin, thank you so much. Thank you for taking time out of your busy morning um, to have this conversation. It's just, it's delightful to talk to you. Thank you. I enjoy our time that we get to to talk about these topics. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Pastor Melvin and I were talking um, and before this episode began and just he'll be done with his dissertation and graduating in June and his wife is Dr. Cross and he'll be Dr. Cross. So it'll be uh, lovely to have two Dr. Crosses. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited about it. It's, yeah. And my wife is pushing me to finish. So. <laughs> All right. Well, have a great rest of your day. All right. Thank you for this opportunity, Nicole. You enjoy the rest of your day as well. Thank you. This is Nicole Doily. Special thanks to Dan Parker for producing this episode of Let's Talk. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.